How many people here have heard it said that America is a Christian nation? Show me those hands. And I'm going to ask the card question today, are we? I mean, are we really? Maybe at one time we were. Patrick Henry, how many people know Patrick Henry? I've heard of Patrick Henry. I'm afraid most of us don't learn these things too much in school anymore. Patrick Henry was a famous statesman from Virginia. Uh, in 1764, he was elected to the Virginia House of Burgesses, where he became a champion of the frontier people. In 1774, he was delegate to the First Continental Congress. In 1775, at the Virginia Provincial Convention, where they were deeply divided whether or not to fight for independence or to remain loyal to uh, England, supported England, he uttered the famous phrase, which we all know, give me liberty or give me Give me liberty or give me death. That's what he's known for. During the Revolutionary War, he was the commander-in-chief for Virginia's military. He was a member of the Second Continental Congress, and he drew up the first Commonwealth, uh, the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And he uh, was also responsible, very instrumental in writing the amendment to our Constitution known as the Bill of Rights. He, had a seat in the, he was offered a seat in the U.S. Senate. He served as Virginia's governor and was reelected three times. He was offered a seat in the Senate. He was offered the ambassadorship to Spain and France. President George Washington asked him to serve in his, in his uh, cabinet as Secretary of State. He was even later on, they asked him to consider being the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. But he refused all of those honors and recognitions. Now, why am I telling you about Patrick Henry this morning? Because I want you to understand how ingrained and important he was at the founding of our nation. Now I want you to listen to his words. This is what he said. It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his last will and testament, he left everything to his ch children, as many do. But the last paragraph of his will says this. Get this. I have now given everything I own to my children, but there is one thing I wish I could give them. And that is Christ. Because if they have everything I gave them and don't have Christ, they have nothing. So let me ask you a question. Were we a Christian nation at one time? Yeah, I think many of us would say that. Are we still a Christian nation now? Are we? It sort of depends on how you define Christian nation, right? Um, if the definition of a Christian nation is everyone is a Christian, then obviously we're not a Christian nation. Uh, we're not a Christian nation. And now more than ever, we are not a Christian nation, right? But if it means that Christianity was at the founding of our, uh, of our commonwealth, of our, of our democracy, of, our, of, of this experiment that we call America, then yes, absolutely. It was so inextricably tied to that. It was the faith of so many of our nation's founding fathers. The influence on our original documents is undeniable. And if Christian ethics and morals don't sum up what America was, then we don't understand it. So yes, we are a Christian nation. The New York legislature in 1838 said, this is, a, this is an official thing. This is a Christian nation. 99 hundredths, if not a larger proportion of our whole population, believe in the general doctrines of the Christian religion. It was the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court in 1892 that said, in the court's opinion, the United States is a Christian nation. 
The 28th president, Woodrow Wilson, served in the 19, uh, late teens and 20s. In his famous Bible in Progress, he stated this, America was born a Christian nation. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of righteousness, which are derived from the revelations of Holy Scripture. Now, we may have started out as a Christian nation, but even with those overwhelming Christian principles that founded our country, we are not God's chosen people. We are not God's chosen people. We are not God's chosen nation. How many people have ever heard people in America quote this verse from 2 Chronicles 7? And if you've got notes, follow along with me. You can see these scriptures in your notes. You can hopefully see them up on the screen. It says, then if my people who are called by what? My name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their what? From their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and what? Restore their land, heal their land in another translation. Guess what? That verse was not written to the United States of America. You can't just randomly apply that to the United States. Now, I want you to see something true. This came up in our staff meeting, and Augusto pointed this out. Here's the first point this morning. The principle is true, but the promise may not be for you. The principle is true, but the promise may not be for you. The principle is true. When people repent and turn back to God, he will forgive them. He will heal them. And he does that because that's a part of his character. That's who God is. God is a God of grace and mercy. He's full of grace and mercy. But the promise to heal the land was not a promise for Purple Mountain's majesty. That was not a promise for amber waves of grain. That was not a promise from sea to shining sea. It was a promise to Israel. And we need to understand that. We've been studying the book of Romans. I'm going to wrap up Romans 11 this morning. If you've got a Bible and you want to open to Romans 11, that'd be great. We are wrapping up the last few verses of Romans 11. But Romans 9 through 11, this whole passage has been about God's promises to Israel. And has he been faithful to those promises in Israel? Because God made this special promise, had a special relationship with the people of Israel. And God promised to bless Israel with salvation and he promised to use Israel to bring that blessing to the nations. Now, we believe we are a Christian nation, or at least we were founded that way, founded on Christian principles. But the United States is not God's chosen people. Here's the first point of the message this morning. Israel will always be God's people. The nation of Israel, God's people, uh, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are God's people. Let's jump into Romans chapter 11 and see in verse 28 it says this. Many of the people of Israel are now what? Enemies of the good news. And this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loves. Because he what? Chose their ancestors. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gifts and his call can what? Never be withdrawn. Never be withdrawn. But get this, Israel has turned its back on God. This is where it gets interesting. Israel's turned its back on God. They have denied the good news. Heck, they crucified Christ. It was them chanting, crucify, crucify. The, the, the representative of Rome didn't want to do it. But they crucified him. And yet this verse says, yet they are still the people he loved. They are still his people. 
God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. Can I ask you a question? Aren't you glad God still loves his people? Aren't you glad God still loves you? Even when you turn your back on him? I'm glad. Yes, I heard a yeah over there. I will take that. Um, Aren't you glad God never gives up on you? Isn't it your prayer that God will never give up on these United States of America? Absolutely. Listen to what it says in Romans 11 as we continue. It says, once you Gentiles, by the way, Gentiles, that's us people, were rebels against God. But when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was, what was he? Merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels and God's mercy has come to you or us, so that they too will share in God's what? Mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so he could have mercy on everyone. So get this, here's the point. Even when Israel turned from God, he was using them. Even when Israel turned away from God, he was still using them. Not only does God not give up on Israel, he uses their disobedience and their rebellion to reach the Gentiles. That's you and I. That's us. So how does this relate to us? How does this relate to us on the 4th of July? Well, let me tell you something that is a hard truth. But our nation has been sliding away from God. I don't know if there's too many people that would disagree with me on that. Our nation's been sliding away from God. It's been sliding away from His principles. And we see it more and more in our everyday life. And we can pray for revival, and we should. And we as Christians need to live out our faith every day and in every way at our homes and in our neighborhoods and at our workplaces. And right here in our church, we continue to be a beacon of life for God's kingdom in our country. But still, it seems like our country is moving farther and farther away from our beginnings as a Christian nation. You guys know the story behind under God being added to the Pledge of Allegiance? Under God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance. It was taken, that phrase was taken from Abraham Lincoln's famous Gettysburg Address. And it said this, that this nation under God shall have a new birth. And it was added to the Pledge of Allegiance not that long ago, 1954. 1954. At a joint resolution of Congress. On June 14, 1954, President Eisenhower signed into law the pledge. And the pledge says, say it with me, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, what? Under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. He added that as a congressional act. President Eisenhower said, yes, we are adding under God to the Pledge Pledge of Allegiance. He said this, this is what he said, in this way we are reaffirming, 1954, we are reaffirming the transcendence of religious faith in America's heritage and future. In this way we shall constantly strengthen those spiritual weapons which forever will be our country's most powerful resource in peace and war. And then he stood on the steps of the Capitol building and recited the Pledge of Allegiance and for the first time with the phrase, One Nation Under God. But even if we turn away from God, even if we aren't acting like one nation under God, God will still be at work. 
God will still be at work. He will still use the situation and the people that he has here in this country to reach lost people and to proclaim his glory. And this is where the passage turns. If you've got Romans 11, take a look in there. And it, Paul says, oh. You ever see oh in the scriptures? Oh, just says oh. Oh, oh. How, how many people, oh, we sang it in Run to the Father. Oh, Oh, that's exactly the O that we're talking about here. This O in the Greek is almost untranslatable. It's a note of exclamation. It's almost untranslatable into English. And what he's saying is he is awestruck with God. He is going, oh, it's the O of OMG, young people. It's O, 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 O. And, and here's what happens. This is so interesting to me. Paul essentially breaks into song. He starts singing. In the middle of his uh, doctrinal assertion of who Israel is and what we believe, he jumps into a song. It's a nine-line hymn, and it's a song of worship. His masterwork of theology, Paul's masterwork of Romans of theology, in the middle of it, he just goes, oh, and he starts singing. I would do it too, but I don't know the, I don't know the tune of the song. He, he can't contain it, and so he, he can't contain it with rational arguments, so he begins to sing the song, and so he drops the beat, and he hits it, and he belts the lyrics. Where's Spencer? I need someone to drop me a beat. Drop. I can't do it. All right. Here's what the song is all about. Ready? Here's what the song is all about. We don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. Romans eleven thirty three. This is the song. Oh, how great are God's riches in wisdom and knowledge? How impossible is it for us to understand his decisions and his ways? For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? Anybody here ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? I love being the smartest guy in the room. The Dunning-Kruger effect, this is an interesting thing. In, in a lot of ways, it's defined in the book of Proverbs. And even Shakespeare kind of talked about it. This is what it, he, when he said, the fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man know himself to be a fool. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Let me give you, in layman's terms, this is the, dumbing, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Dumb people don't know they're dumb. Do you know that? Dumb people don't know they're dumb. In fact, they think they're smarter than you even though they're dumb. They don't know that. Uh, it, it's so funny because many of us think we know, it explains why we think we know more than the experts, right? When we fall victim to the Dunning-Kruger effect, we don't know what we don't know. We're aware that we don't know everything, but we think we have everything we need to make a decision. And so it's this combination between pride and arrogance. Let me give you an example. Do you know there are two perfect ages? The age of four and the age of 14. When you are four years old, you have nothing but questions, right? Why, daddy? Why? Why is it like that? Why? I don't, how come? Why? Why? And at age 14, you have all the answers. Can I get an amen out of anyone? The problem is a lot of us stay at 14, don't we? We think to ourselves, oh, I, I know what's going on here. But get this, Paul knows. He knows that he doesn't know what he doesn't know. He knows that God is greater, bigger, more powerful, more mighty, more majestic, more glorious than anything he could possibly imagine. He knows what he, he knows he doesn't know. How do we think about this God that is so amazingly powerful and mighty and good and gracious and full of love? How do we know this God? We, we can't really know him. He's, 
He's sort of unknowable. But I want you to know something about this God. God knows you. He knows your circumstance. God knows the answer to your most difficult questions that you're ruminating around. God knows your future. God knows, he knows why he created you. He knows how uniquely individual, he designed you uniquely and individualistically. He knows your strengths and your weaknesses. He knows the plans he has for you. He knows you, but he is still sort of unknowable. And here's the point, ready? We can understand some things about God, but you can't understand God. We cannot understand God. We just can't. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 55. It says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could what? Even imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. But this is the point that I want you to understand. You don't have to know God to know God. You don't have to understand everything about God to really know God. He is beyond comprehension. You don't have to understand it all to trust God. You can't understand it all. You know, I know the funny thing is we do things every day that we can't completely understand that we put our trust, faith, joy in. Uh, uh, let me give you an example. When the doctor says to you, hey, we need to have surgery, and they bring you into that room and they start talking about this is what we're going to do. We're going to make an incision and then we're going to go in and then we're going to look at the, uh, the, the artery that's beside the this, that, and the other thing. At what point do you tune out? Because at some point, even if it's your body, you're like, uh, take it out, doc, right? We, we, we don't understand, but we're like, I, it's got to go out. So let, yeah, we should remove that. Let's, let's just remove that. I don't know everything about the procedure, but I know the doctor knows. And so I'm going to let him do what he does. I'll give you another example. I was watching a video this week. Uh, Tesla. Anybody, the Tesla cars that are out there on the road? There was a video on the news that I saw this week of a guy in his Tesla sleeping in the driver's seat. Anybody seen these videos? Yeah, he's sleeping in the driver's seat. They are driving down the road 60 miles an hour. His wife is in the passenger seat. She's like this, which is how my wife is on every trip that I'm ever on. Do you, you know what I'm talking about here, right? But the guy who is in the driver's seat is like this. I mean, he's just sleeping completely at the wheel. And that thing is humming along at 55 miles an hour. And the guy next to him in the car next to him is taking the video and they're showing this. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy does not know anything about how the sensors work together with the algorithms in the software and the Tesla, but he trusted enough to take a little nappy poo on the road, right? Like we don't have to know everything to know enough to know God. That's how it works. We may not fully understand what God is doing in our lives, but certain things about God can be known. Here's what we know about God. God is a God of love. God is a God of unfailing grace and mercy. And in those moments where we don't understand what is going on, we can trust God does. And that he's working it out. And in those moments, we can know that God will act in ways that are consistent with his character. And then our only response is to praise him for it. 
And that's why we're here this morning. We gathered for one reason and one reason only, to praise God through worship. It all leads back to worship. Listen to the last verse here in Romans 11. For everything comes from Him and exists by His power and is intended for what? His glory. All glory to Him forever. Amen. Anybody heard the words Laos Deo? Anybody know what those words mean? Laos Deo? Man, this is awesome being the smartest guy in the room. I love that. Let me tell you a story about Laos Deo. Did you know that in Washington, D.C., there can never be a building built to a greater height than that of the Washington Monument? Washington Monument must be the highest structure in Washington, D.C. It's the law. On the top of the Washington Monument, there is an aluminum cap. And it's displayed there, these two words, Laos Dale. No one can see these words, really. I mean, you'd have to have a drone flying up there to see them. Um, in fact, most visitors who go to the monument, walk the monument, they don't have any idea that it's up there. They are totally unaware. But those words have been up there since it was constructed at 555 feet, 5.125 inches high, perched atop the monument, facing skyward to the father of our nation. It overlooks the 69 square miles which compromise the District of Columbia, the capital of the United States of America. Laos Deo, those two words, seemingly insignificant, unnoticed, out of sight, out of mind words, but very meaningfully placed at the top of the highest point that overlooks our nation's capital. And what do those two words mean in Latin? They mean this, very simply, praise be to God. Praise be to God. They built this thing in 1848. It took 25 years to complete. And when they put the top on there, they put a tribute to the Father on the very highest point in the capital of our nation. Praise be to God. Which leads me to... So what, Steve? What do we do with all this? How do we make sense of this? We're not a Christian nation. We're not God's chosen people. Israel is. But guess what? No matter what happens... In this nation, we will continue to be God's people because we are the church. We will continue to live out God's principles because I'm his child. And we will do that in the most profound way we can by worshiping God. This week, I was sitting at a campfire on Monday night with two of my nieces uh, and, a, and some of my kids and a friend. I'm just surrounded by 20-somethings these days all the time. And as we're sitting at this campfire, the conversation, it talked about everything, and eventually it turned to worship songs. These were the songs that these kids were listening to right now. And I said, okay, right now, right now, right now, everybody get out your phone and start sending me links to these songs. And so they're sending me links to these songs, and I'm getting them on my phone, and as I'm sitting there, I'm compiling them into a playlist on Spotify, and I've got this playlist that is my 20-something people that I love worship playlist. And I started listening to these songs this week. And there's this song called Goodness of God. There is Run to the Father. We nailed that. We're on top of Run to the Father. That was on that list. But can I tell you, there's this new song called Goodness of God. And as I'm listening to the lyrics of this song, and I'm thinking about 20-somethings that are praising God through this, it says, I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up, until I lay my head, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. 
Hey, I want to invite our worship team to come back up as I'm finishing here. It says, because all of my life, you have been faithful. And all of my life, you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. Here's my final point. And let me just tell you, in this crazy mixed up world that is sliding away from God, and even as Glenn said, we face so many challenges right now, I'm going to tell you unequivocally, I don't know what God is up to, but I know I can trust Him. I don't know how this will all work out for our nation, but I can still worship Him. The so what of this deep theological work that Paul's been doing as he defends the nation of Israel, it just becomes a worship song. It has to, in the middle of his text, he just starts singing and writing songs. And I thought to myself, what is the so what of this? The so what is you sing the song. You sing the stinking worship song. You worship when chaos is around you. You worship when you don't know what's going to happen next. You worship the God of creation who has been in charge since the beginning and he's con- his character is so consistent. You just worship. You know that song that when it comes up on your playlist and, and, the, and the, you hear the first couple of notes of the song and you think, oh, this is my song, this is my jam right now. This is, this is my right now song, the song that I just hit on repeat again and again and again. And what do you do? You unequivocally, almost without notion, you reach for the volume knob and you turn it up. Like, you, I didn't even make a physical choice to do that. And I'm listening to this song. And when the first lyrics start, what do you do? You crush those first lyrics. You start hammering it because this is who God is. And we worship the God of creation. We worship the God who is present with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We worship the God who was present when our nation was founded, and he's still present today. Father God, we worship you. We choose to worship you in the middle of chaos, God, we're so thankful for those men and women who, who put it all on the line to create this country, to do it under your name, God. Father, we continue that legacy today. We want to be people of faith where we are. But God, this morning and every day, God, I pray that as we drive our cars, as we put our headphones in, as we gather for worship, that we would just sing of a God who is so good, so full of love, so full of grace and mercy. This is our song, God. We worship you.